This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. For the full show and archives, visit jodcast.net. I'm here with Dr. Adam Everson from the University of Manchester. Welcome back to the Jodcast. Yep. <laughs> um, I think you, you must be one of the longest running Jodcasters who's still here, right? I think I pro- probably am the longest running one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I thought I'd catch you for an interview because I don't think you've been interviewed in at least a good five years. Yep. So I thought you could update us on what you've been doing since then. My job is sort of split two ways. One is working for the ALMA telescope in Chile and the other bit, which is slightly smaller than a half, is when I do my own research and that research is into massive star formation. So how stars eight times the mass of the sun and bigger form. On the side of of research in in the past couple of years, I've been working on a specific object, this SDC-335, which houses one of the most massive star forming cores in our galaxy. And we've been looking into what's going on there, actually using the ALMA telescope. So the other half of my job is quite handy for that. And we've been looking at the stars that are forming in there and how big they're going to be. And from that, we can calculate how big this cloud, which is what this SDC-335 thing is, how many stars that's going to form when it finishes star formation hundreds of thousands of years from now. I'm looking at the kinematics of what kind of outflows and disks are in that source is what what has been occupying my sort of research time since the last time I was interviewed. You were talking about you've been studying this particular object. So do you tend to find that massive stars all form in similar regions? Are those regions or objects very common? Or Massive stars are rarer than the low mass stars and there's a lot of evidence that shows that the size of the cloud that you start with determines the number of massive stars you get so basically if you've got a big cloud then that will collapse or parts of it will collapse and in those clumps you'll start to form cores and if the clumps are big enough then you will get some massive stars forming there so they're rarer and which is annoying because that means they're usually a bit further away than, than low mass forming stars but you can easily identify where their massive stars are forming and that's something i did way back during my phd so there's these little little things there hundreds of AU across, but or at least that's what we think. These things called masers, which is like lasers, but with an M. And there's a particular species of methanol maser that emits at a certain frequency. And part of the work I did during my PhD was locating where these are throughout our galaxy. So basically, we've got these neat little signposts saying, yeah, there's massive stars forming here and massive stars forming here. Don't bother looking over there because there's no maser, so there's probably no massive stars. And a lot of people since have, have gone off and looked in low-mass star-forming regions to see if there's any of these masers, and there aren't. So we've got a nice definite signpost. Look here. So Why do you get masers in high-mass star-forming regions? That particular species of maser is what we call radiatively pumped, so it needs a certain kind of radiation, and it, it's some infrared. You need a certain level of infrared photons, and basically you don't get that in low-mass star-forming regions, and the densities and and other bits and pieces prevent the maser from occurring because it needs a quite a particular environment to exist in, and that is linked to where massive stars form. So it's nice to have these nice little pinpoints throughout the galaxy to go, yeah, we should look there. And, and mm, Yeah, handy yeah. signpost, as yeah. you said. <laughs> yeah. So what is different about the way that these massive stars form rather than more regular-sized stars? We think, and astronomers in general, I mean, but not mm. just we here, I think we understand how low mass stars form. So as I was saying, you've got these clouds and they, they fragment into clumps. And then as things get smaller, you get these little cores. And, and in those, basically, well, as you collapse, you get these spherical objects and you get an accretion disk around them and stars, the low mass stars form. So eventually, you know, the pressure increases and the density increases. And then eventually hydrogen burning starts and you've got a star. For high mass stars, the problem is the amount of time it takes for the amount of mass that they eventually end up with to fall into one of these objects is 
longer than the time it takes for hydrogen burning to start, so fusion to start. And once that has started, then the output of photons should prevent anything else falling onto them. So the, the, the light coming out of this newly hydrogen burning star should basically push any matter away, uh, start ionizing things around it. We do find these massive stars. I think the record holder is something of 150 solar masses. So that's pretty large. There's, a, there's only one of those that mm-hmm. we know about. So there, there's, there are problems with our understanding or our understanding is limited as to how massive stars form. So they are interesting objects and we are trying to figure out how you can go from, if, if you can scale up low mass, star formation and there must be some little mechanism that little trick that allows the massive stars to to carry on forming to get their final mass or whether something completely different is happening so there's a few a few theories there one of them that i kind of like is that as they form they swell up and therefore they're not as dense and they're not as bright so they don't push back basically with the, the outputting radiation as much as they would if they were the densest they could be which means that they can carry on accreting mass it's an open question, and by studying some of their features, so when it starts forming, you, you re- regularly get a disk, and you also get what we call molecular outflow, so to conserve angular momentum, if you've got a disk throwing matter onto to the surface of a, a forming star, then you, you usually end up with molecular outflows coming out at the poles, which gets rid of some of this energy, and you can... They're huge in comparison to the, the star in the... the protostar in the, in the centre that's, that's making them, so you can very easily study these things by looking at the energy and the sizes and, and things, you can figure out what must be going on in these very small regions that you can't really see with most telescopes. So it's kind of the work that I've been I've been doing over the past year or so. So looking at outflows. Hopefully that will be published by the end of this year. <laughs> and what have you learned so far from those outflows? The outflows that I'm looking at towards this particular object is they, they seem fairly large and, and young compared to a lot of objects that have been seen before, which hopefully will indicate that we're looking at Something at the very early stages of its of its formation, meaning that we can sort of start to constrain what's going on at early times, and then we can compare it to things that are a bit older and and see if there's any any evolutionary trends that we can we can see, and that will give us a better understanding of what's going on with these as the stars are forming. So it's interesting work. It's not quite finished, but it, it's getting there, and um, it's showing that the objects that we've been looking at are fairly interesting and fairly massive. So. Previously, we had limited them to being about 10 solar masses, but I think that is very much the lower end of how massive they are because they're still forming, so they've still got plenty of time to pack on some weight and be really massive objects. How do you figure out how massive they are? What we did for for that was we measured what we call the continuum flux at a a given frequency or a couple of frequencies. So that's all the light, and this is at radio wavelengths, all the light that isn't associated with molecular emission. So we have these as these these free electrons sort of whipping around in the in the ionized hydrogen, and and the electrons are sort of freely moving. And as they go past a, a proton, then they sort of their path gets curved, and a photon shoots out. And we we looked at this kind of emission, and you can say from that the amount of that kind of emission, you can say you can relate through certain laws that have been calculated. So from the amount of free free emission that you can observe, you can relate that to the number of photons that are needed to ionize the amount of gas. And from that, you can say, basically, if you had a star, uh, a proper star, like a, a fully fully realized evolved star that, that's on the main sequence, if you had one of those, how massive it would have to be. So what we call a, a zero-age main sequence spectral type. So just to recap that, because it went quite long. We measured something in the radio. We could relate that to something at a different wavelength. And that 
gives you characteristics about stars that we we have observed throughout the the galaxy and one of the properties of those stars is we know its mass so we can see from our radio observations how massive the 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 protostars in the in the source are so we got we got a handful of things that are at a lower limit of about 10 solar masses so three of them so far and then we're pushing down to see if there's any other stars forming in that core but the question that pops straight into my mind is but how do you know that that protostar is like the other ones you see on their main sequence that is sort of the uh, the conceit we have there. It's basically, we have this bit of information and the best we can say about what we think it is at this current time is mm-hmm. that it, it will, it is behaving like one of these actual stars. So, uh, but as I said, they, they, these things are fairly young. So they've got plenty of time to, to keep evolving. And I think my current, uh, opinion of what's going on, uh, towards some of these stars is that they're, they're not going to be that mass when they're finished they're going to be much bigger there's a lot of material still in the cloud to be accreted and yeah they could end up fairly big so that's interesting if only i was going to be around in ten thousand years to figure out (laughs) (laughs) just watch it all happen that'd be glorious so you originally mentioned that one of the theories about how these massive stars form you were saying that they the material is less dense nearby so would you be able to observe any consequences of that theory and are you able to study it I'm not sure that we're capable of observing it right now because if this theory that they do swell up is correct, then they're, they're still very, very small. The current resolution of some of the telescopes we're using is, is, well, you can easily resolve things that are milli arc seconds. So that's thousandths of arc seconds and an arc second is 1360th of a degree. So they're, they're fairly small on the sky, but the, other problem is we have observed, for example, recently ALMA, the telescope that I, I spend most of my time working for, has, has resolved the surface of Betelgeuse, which yeah, is wow. very cool. That's a, that's a star at the end of its life. It's sort of got this mottled asymmetric surface. That's because lumps of it are falling off, basically, or coming off. So we can, we can sort of see the surfaces of those kind of evolved stars, but for protostars, even if they're sort of puffed out, they'll still be, I think, a little bit too small for, for observing with current instruments. And also the the energy outputs so or the brightness of them at wavelengths where we're capable, so radio wavelengths, is going to be so low that it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, with current instruments to uh, to observe them. So too faint and too small. Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. always the problem. Yeah. And I suppose <laughs> as you're saying, if you've got these massive outflows, which are much, much bigger than them, yep. then they're going to dwarf anything. Yeah, so really. they're nice and handy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You said that you spend just less than half of your time on your research and yep. you spend the rest of your time working with ALMA. So what kind of things do you do with ALMA? I'm one of the UK ALMA support scientists. So there's a office literally across the building from where we are, where myself and George, who people will know from the Jogcast, and, and Anita, one of our other colleagues, basically are, provide user support for the ALMA telescope in Chile to the UK astronomical community. So anyone who wants to use ALMA is free to come and ask us questions and we will help them sort of prepare to you to use Alma. So to get time on any telescope nowadays, you need to write a proposal and say, I want to observe this source. Here's the really good scientific reason. So these are the questions we're going to answer. Please give us time. And also usually in those proposals, here is why your telescope is the only telescope that can possibly do this, uh, this science. So we help them write those. And, and part of what I do is I run a simulator for Alma. So people can say, look, we think this is what the thing in the sky looks like. What would Alma see if we could... We could observe it and they just fill in a web form basically and hit go in a little box outside my office 
churns through the numbers and sends them back an image and goes, look, it's going to look really good because everything with Alma looks really good. So we do that kind of stuff. And then another thing which is slightly different from how telescopes have behaved in the past, though, is sort of the coming thing with Alma is, so once you've got your time and you've done all the the preparation and, and written a little schedule, so what should be observed when, you also say, I want the image to have a particular sensitivity. So I want to be able to see objects to this level. And so the background noise needs to be at this lower level. And what we do is we do basically quality assurance. So the data comes off the telescope and then it goes, the telescope's in Chile. It goes to Santiago, the center, the capital of Chile, then gets sent. If it's European, it gets sent to ESO, which is based just outside Munich. And then it gets sent to us if it's someone in the UK or someone who's specifically asked for us to work on their data. And we sit and we process the data and we make images and we check that the sensitivity requirements are met, make sure there's nothing wrong with the data, like like the an antenna was pointing the wrong way or something, which never happens. <laughs> and yeah, so we, we do that, which is kind of really awesome because we get to see all these cool results before even the people that proposed for them got to see them. So I've seen some really nice things, which I'm not allowed to talk about because they're probably not published yet, but... Alma makes some amazing images of things from, well, things in our own solar system all the way out to, so the the record holder, I think, for Alma is a look back time of 13.2 billion years, so... That's, what? Yeah, I know. I, I, I think of Alma as a very local <laughs> yeah, yeah, instrument. It does. So, yeah, yeah, I wish I could remember the name of the object, mm-hmm. but it's got some really obscure serial number rather than having a proper name. But basically, there's a, if you go onto the Alma Observatory... Dot org, which is sort of the public-facing Alma website, and go through the press releases. There's this really nice Hubble images. So it's a Hubble image. It's got all these beautiful galaxies all in the optical with you. You can see, you know, uh, lensed galaxies. And then right in the top corner, highlighted by a box, is this sort of faint red smudge. And that's the <laughs> Alma detection. But it's really, it's it's really early universe stuff. So that's Ooh. yeah. So we get to see all kinds of of cool things. Yeah. No, that's incredible. And to be honest, everything I hear about Alma blows my mind. I remember when someone kind of who was leading the Alma project came and gave a talk and they were talking about when they built and um, when they were building the telescopes and they had their processing units nearby, all the fans kept breaking. Oh, yeah. At such high altitude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just all, all of the kind of little things they had to think about. And even the fact that, you know, you've got this quality assurance yeah. process. It sounds like a small thing, but from given that, you know, there's quite a lot of radio astronomers here. And I hear the pain of going through that process yes. and you kind of take that away. <laughs> yeah, so like during my PhD, I, I used a telescope, the Australia Telescope Compact Array. And what you did is you went and observed, which is another thing you don't do with Alma. Someone else observes everything for you. You went to this telescope in Australia, did your observations. You got some raw data, gigabytes and gigabytes of it. You put it on a memory stick, you flew back, and then you spent weeks and weeks afterwards processing it or at least i did until i learned how it worked properly i think if you're a professional you can well you can do it fairly quickly i can do that kind of stuff you know in a day now but you know it's, it's a steep learning curve when you're a student so mm. um having that kind of data all sort of processed at least a one pass so that you know that everything's okay and you've got what we call scripts so bits of code that will run you through each step that you need to do if you want to go back and make different things with alma data you just take one of these and tweak some parameters and it's, it's all sort of, you know that basically the right thing's coming out at the end. It's very handy. It means that we've now got, Alma's now got this big archive of data that people can go and mine and rather than having to propose, which is good seen as how competitive it is to get time mm-hmm. on Alma. It was oversubscribed by about seven times. So every, wow. every, every one hour 
or available on the telescope seven people wanted it basically <laughs> but i mean no wonder yeah <laughs> given everything you've just described yeah. uh, it sounds like a much much less painful experience than yeah <laughs> any other telescope so you said you know you you get to have a glimpse at some of these results before they come out yep. are there any highlights that have come out that you're allowed to talk about some of the very early data, this wasn't something that I'd processed, but it was something that an equivalent of, of what we do in Manchester in the ALMA office, uh, there is an equivalent in a whole bunch of countries. And, and in, in this, in this particular case, there's the equivalent office in Sweden. And one of the uh, people that do or did what I do over there got some time on ALMA and it was very early on looking at this evolved star called Arsculptoris. And they were expecting to see some carbon monoxide emissions. So that's one of the things Alma's really good at finding is carbon monoxide. It's everywhere in the, in the galaxy. They were expecting to see a ring because this evolved star is sort of blowing off outer shells of its gas. And what they found when they got their Alma results was they found the ring that they, they were looking for and they could see the, the CO near the surface of the star. But also between the outer ring and sort of where the central star is, there was this nice spiral pattern coming out of the, oh, of wow. the, of the central region right out to this outer ring. And they had no idea. Well, they, they'd not expected that to exist at all. And they spent ages basically trying to get rid of it. Like, this must be some sort of imaging artifact. Because ALMA is, the telescope itself is, is an interferometer. So it's made of lots of little telescopes scattered around the desert in the Atacama. And basically it is in kind of a spiral pattern. Uh, oh. And they were like, well, is this sort of related to how that the telescope is set out on the on the ground and so you can introduce those kind of artifacts like if you ever see a, a VLA image so from the very large array that's on a, a Y shape and if you get data and do a very bad job of making images you'll end <laughs> up with like stripes and, and things that look kind of like a Y shape pattern so they spent a long time that's if you do a bad job which mm-hmm. it, yeah it's easy to get rid of so they spent a lot of time basically trying to get rid of this spiral and in the end they decided that they couldn't get rid of it because it was real. So they were very excited about this. Like, we've got this nice spiral thing coming out of, of this, of the, the central region. And, and the reason that they put behind it was basically there's, there's this old star, Arsculptoris, and it must have a companion that is not quite as uh, evolved or orbiting it. And that is sort of funneling the gas and creating this spiral that's just coming out. So it was an unexpected result and it created one of Alma's sort of earliest and most uh, spectacular sort of press release images. It's really mm. nice spirally sort of rose-coloured image that they put out. So that was one really cool thing. Yeah, no, that sounds wonderful. God, that must have been a nightmare for them when they got yeah, it, yeah. though, spending all that time trying to rule out yeah. that it's not just an artefact. So we, we, we have what's called an all-hands meeting where everyone in Europe who works on Alma gets together and they presented this before they submitted it to any journals or anything. We're just like, anyone have any ideas how to get rid of this? I don't <laughs> think it's real. And then, you know, we got an email a few months later going, yeah, we, we, we can't get rid of it. It's definitely real. This is kind of cool. <laughs> How good is Alma? <laughs> yeah, no, that is, that's pretty impressive. Going back to your research, so you said you're working on a publication at the moment, mm-hmm. um, but what are you looking forward to over the next few years in your field of massive star formation? What's going to be quite exciting is next July, one of these semi-regular big massive star formation conferences is happening. It's exciting and slightly terrifying because we're organising it this time. So uh, <laughs> we just hopefully booked a hotel and stuff. But that is that is going to be a, a time when you know people are really showing what they're up to right now. So um, yeah, that's going to be the the big thing in the next year. So hopefully that we'll see some stuff on sort of magnetic fields because it's the old joke in, in astronomy talks. You wait until the end and then just put your hand up and go, "What about the magnetic fields?" 
every topic. Every single yeah. t- It doesn't matter what topic it is. Alma has started doing polarization observations, so oh. you'll be able to start measuring magnetic fields, hopefully, around in these regions. Magnetic fields are probably going to be the big interesting thing, and, and people will then have to come up with a new joke <laughs> question at the end of talks. Are they expected to be dynamically significant? Like, are they expected to be important in those regions? Yes, so part of, possibly part of what shapes the the outflows could be related to magnetic fields. Also, the magnetic fields within clouds can have an effect on the turbulence, which affects how they fragment and clump. So those are going to be fairly important results when they start coming out. So currently, I think the best, sort of, some of the best polarised images of the galaxy on a large scale is the Planck telescope. On the scales we want to look at, it's not quite, not quite ideal. So that's coming with, with Alma and I think sort of the JVLA is probably going to be doing stuff like that as well. So it's going to be an interesting, interesting sort of avenue of research over the next couple of years is what we're going to find out when that starts becoming commonplace rather than the rarity that it is now. Um, it'll also be interesting to see because that problem of how magnetic field shape outflows isn't just specific to star formation either. That's something you see in different areas of astronomy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you, you get it through in radio jets from active galactic nuclei and, and mm. all kinds of stuff. So that should be pretty, pretty interesting. The other sort of not specific to my research, massive difference in size scales, but hopefully next year the observations have been taken with ALMA. ALMA joined up uh, with a whole bunch of telescopes around the world to create what is known as the Event Horizon Telescope, to try and observe the Event Horizon of the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy. I believe some or all of the data has been taken and people are looking at it to see if they can image, if it's good enough quality to do this this sort of snapshot of, of the central region and, and see what we can see towards this black hole. So that'll be a fairly interesting result when it comes out. Don't know when that's going to be, but it should be within the next year. So that's going to mm. be no. That, cool. I mean, that would be a world-leading yeah. thing, right? Yeah. That's something that's not really been done before, no, as far no, as I'm no. aware. No, so. it's it, I, it's a first. It's a world first. So that'll be very interesting. <laughs> yeah, so the next year has got lots of lots to come. Really. Yes. Yeah. It's going to be. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> then well, I'll need a holiday. <laughs> yes. Gonna have a nice long break next winter. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you for talking to us again. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah.